My dad joins me in person again for another episode. Stan O'Gleason is the senior pastor of the Life Church of Kansas City, assistant general superintendent, Western Zone of the United Pentecostal Church, and the author of the new book, The Unflawed Leader. The Unflawed Leader, Creating a Culture of Christ-like Wellness in the Local Church by Stan O'Gleason is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, and more. Dad, how are you? Thanks for coming back on. Thank you, Justin. All is well by faith, and it's an honor to join you uh, on this podcast, and I appreciate uh, what you're contributing to the conversation of apostolic life and uh, just living for Jesus and making disciples. Oh, thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. Uh, This book is phenomenal. I've got my copy here, a signed copy here, and as far as I know, this is the first printing. (laughs) And it's not only the first printing, but it's actually the first prototype. (laughs) That's true. That was printed. I've got it. So this thing is worth a lot of money. (laughs) So let me make a comment on that. Yeah. (laughs) It's ironic that you have the prototype. The publisher sent me 10 complimentary copies for my final approval and review. Uh, I also gave one to your sister, Marissa. Right. And she alerted me that there were some uh, editorial mistakes. So uh, actually, there this is a flawed prototype <laughs> of the unflawed leader. <laughs> oh. Well, I didn't catch any errors. So we we went back and uh, uh, adjusted them, and and now it's it's ready to go. It's perfect. It's an unflawed book, perfect. <laughs> and I've got some copies of that too. Beautiful signed uh, copies of this book. So yeah, listeners, get on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple Books. Get your copy. These books are selling quick. So yeah, Dad, congratulations on this book. Um, as far as I can tell. It was nothing that was just written in the last couple of years, but it's been going on for a while. Uh, things you've felt, things that the Lord has dealt with you about, things you've you experienced, and it's about it's a book about Jesus. That's right, and you're exactly right that uh, this book is not an idea that came to me uh, recently, but it's actually been sort of percolating in my spirit for a long time. Um. I would even go so far as to say that in some context, perhaps, it's a bit of an autobiography, Uh, a lot of stories. The book is a leadership book, but it's not one, two, three, how to be a leader. Mm. It's highly anecdotal, but it has 14 treatments of Jesus in real time in a real-life episode. And we're fortunate to be able to study him because he's the only leader in history that did not bring any baggage to his leadership team, to his leadership context. Mm. And he's worthwhile studying as a leader. We don't typically think of Jesus as a leader the way we think of leaders today. We think of him as Savior, Messiah, Healer deliverer, you know, uh, the disciple maker of the 12. But 
when you really step back and you take a clinical look at Jesus as a church leader, then you begin to get an idea of what pristine, unflawed, perfect leadership looks like. Mm. Well, that sounds good. (laughs) And yes, he was a leader. And the primary scripture that you've taken these, uh, what did you call it again, Dad? The 14? uh, Uh, Real-time examples of Jesus in a particular setting. You've kind of, all these 14 point to that scripture, and he did all things well. Mark seven thirty seven. He did all things well. And you just look at the ministry of Jesus as a leader. Everywhere he went, he affected positive change. He was truly the unflawed leader. How did Jesus do this? And how did he bring wellness to the people? And how can leaders... Uh, do this to this day? When you examine Jesus and his particular context, uh, the religious context was anything but well in the first century. Right. It was damaged. It was flawed. Uh, It was highly politically energized. Sure. um, Extreme doses of hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Um, Anytime you're dealing with the religious spirits of Jesus day you're not you're you're looking at a controlled manipulated uh, me first my agenda leadership model and religious spirits are highly toxic yes in fact it was a religious spirit that ultimately killed Jesus and so mm. uh Sure was. So it his model bears uh, time and examination and meditation because he is the goal of leadership in the church. The way he treated people, the way he handled people, the way he spoke to people. You know, back in the '90s, there was that WWJD. What would Jesus do? I remember that. Yeah, it sold a lot of bracelets and and t-shirts and you know and 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 probably bumper stickers. But you know, I'm pushing back on that and saying what would Jesus not do? <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> if Jesus did it, do it. But if he didn't do it, don't do it. Exactly. If he said it, say it. But if he didn't say it that way, don't say it that way. For example, you know, it's okay to preach about hell, but don't preach like you want people to go there. <laughs> you know, that's a thought. It's <laughs> a good place to start. Yeah. And so exactly, uh, Jesus is worth studying. Amen. Amen. You are listening to Justin C. Gleason. Please consider following and keeping this podcast playing in the background of your productive day. Give a five-star rating and support by giving through Cash App, PayPal, or Venmo at Justin C. Gleason. It's 2022, the year we prevail. You've, uh, the stories in this book are great. Uh, it was neat to read stories uh, about our own family. Uh, a lot of them are about me, actually, listeners. If you want to know about Justin and his teen years... <laughs> You can uh, read about it in this book. We won't spoil it for you. But you did talk a, a little bit 
about your home church, how you grew up, and you always appreciated your home church, the preaching and teaching. It was all about big ideas, big ideas. And that's important because ideas really what sell, really what connect to minds and hearts. And you said growing up and you in developing to a minister, you knew nothing about abuse from the pulpit. Uh, for example, saint bashing, criticizing crosstown churches, the holiness clothesline, <laughs> angry preaching, control, uh, manipulation, and all this can be summed up into pulpit abuse. Pulpit abuse, you talk extensively about that. Uh, I guess describe more about what that looks like and what can be done uh, to correct that and what can be done possibly to heal somebody who's had pulpit abuse. Well, you're right in that my home church uh, was a church that the preaching focused on the big ideas of the Bible. Amen. And I think the philosophy there was that if you major on the majors— and don't major on the minors, that everything else will fall into place. Get first things first. Yes. It's like if you get up in the morning and you're buttoning your shirt and you miss, you know, the first button in the first buttonhole, I mean, you're going to look, you know, like a clown, right? <laughs> a little disheveled. <laughs> yeah. But if you get the first button right, then you don't even have to pay attention to the rest of the buttoning of your shirt. It just falls in line naturally. Yeah. And I think that's true in leading and in preaching. To preach, teach, model the big ideas of the Bible. And what are the big ideas? Uh, doctrine, the gospel, yeah. uh, reaching the world. The Bible is God's story. It's his story of redemption. And focus on that. And I didn't realize what a healthy church culture I was in growing up and the healthy pulpit culture that I listened to for the first 21 years of my life. But as I became a pastor, I've reflected often on that. And uh, I never heard a cheap sermon. I never heard a Mm. Well, I'm just going to wing it now, sermon. I never was subjected to mm. angry preaching. I never was subjected to what we would call, you know, clothesline preaching. Now, <laughs> what, now what is that? Okay, clothesline preaching. <laughs> and, you, and, you, and you're right, and I quote, holiness clothesline. <laughs> yeah. Clothesline, <I> like <laughs> yeah, clothesline preaching is, you know, hair, pants, makeup, jewelry, what we wear, how long we wear it, how high we pile it. You know, uh, and believe me, you know, we believe in holiness, inward, outward. Absolutely. But holiness and is... we preach it, teach it. We teach it, we preach it. Uh, at the Life Church, we'll, we'll put our choir up against any other choir as far as external holiness is concerned. But I want to say that holiness is a much bigger issue than you know, external things. You know, holiness is an attitude. Mm -hmm. Philippians 2.5, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, so my home church uh, blessed me my whole life 
with the big idea preaching and teaching and modeling of the Scripture. And I think the bigger we keep the pulpit and the ideas of the pulpit, the better chance we have of it reflecting the true nature of Jesus. When we try to dial down uh, and micromanage from the pulpit, it's easier to get away from the model of Jesus. And then we bring our human flawed context uh, to the pulpit. And so that's sort of, I hope I'm approaching the answer to your question. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, keeping the big idea of the true message of Jesus Christ, and that does not really include saint bashing or criticizing crosstown churches, the holiness clothesline, angry preaching. It sounds like, how would you sum that up into maybe one or two words? Is that control, manipulation, uh, not putting love for the things of the Lord, including holiness and lifestyle, but instead of, kind of motivation through control and fear? I think the bigger a leader is, the more his teaching, preaching, attitude, and modeling will be, will permeate everything that he communicates. Mm -hmm. The smaller a leader is, and let me put a let me add a word to this insecurity is a horrible motivator mm. insecurity will take a leader down a a road of perhaps control manipulation uh making arbitrary decisions that maybe impugn lights that are brighter than him or her in their ministry context, whether it's a congregation, a youth group, uh, an adult Sunday school class, a hyphen class, whatever it is, uh, God knows the last thing we need is one more insecure leader. Mm -hmm. We need people that know who they are in Christ, that are secure in their identity in Christ, and can celebrate the gifts and the abilities of others around them and not try to exalt themselves at the expense of putting others down. Mm. That's what it's about. That's where the abuse is, exalting oneself, putting others down, and sadly that does happen. How could a leader, if he reads your book and he says, you know what, I feel conviction, I've been doing this, what can he do to correct himself? You know, it's interesting. The book's only been out two or three weeks, but I already have received... A text message from a pastor who uh, feels convicted mm. uh, that perhaps he expected too much too soon from some of his new believers and really put a high demand on them. And his question to me was, do I go back and apologize? And my response to him was, we should never have to apologize for Christ-like leadership. Amen. We should never have to apologize for Christ-like preaching, teaching, communicating, private, personal conversations. I said, however, yes, um, perhaps an apology is in order. And I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but I'll tell you one story where I actually apologized 
in front of our entire congregation many years ago, perhaps 30 years ago, I got involved in a preacher issue that I should have never brought to the pulpit. And one mistake that sometimes young pastors make is bringing issues that involve the ministry to the pulpit because we usually preach mm. about where we're living. And that's really the best preaching. Of course. Is where we're living, yeah. what we're dealing with, the battles, the struggles, the pain, the victories, the adversity. Uh, that tends to make for the best preaching because we feel it passionately in where we are. But I made a mistake of, um, it was just a short window of time. It wasn't for years. It was only for a few weeks. I got embroiled in a sort of a preacher issue. And I won't go into that, but I made the mistake of bringing that to our pulpit. And I was severely corrected by the Lord Hmm. in a prayer moment. And I went straight to our pulpit, and I apologized to our church. And I'll never forget one of the elders of the church coming up to me. I'd been in the pastor of the church for just a few years, less than five. And a long-term saint and respected elder in our church came up to me, and he said, you know, pastor, today you became my pastor. Oh, wow. I said, what do you mean? He said, I can follow a man that has a prayer life and that can be corrected by the Lord and is a big enough man to apologize and admit he made a mistake. Mm. Then he said, we all knew it. We didn't know where all that was coming from. We knew it didn't apply to us. Uh, But today you became my pastor. Praise God. And that was a a, a transitional moment for me. Mm. That's putting wellness in the culture of a church. Yeah, I think that's very healthy. So an, an apology can be appropriate. Absolutely. You know, uh, sometimes we do things that just quite simply stated are stupid. <laughs> Leaders do things that are, and people are scratching their head. And, you know, they know what's wrong. God knows it's wrong. Sometimes we're the last ones to figure out that, you know what, I overstepped my bounds there. I went too far. And actually, an apology from a leader is quite refreshing. Mm -hmm. Some leaders never admit that they were ever wrong. Like one leader said, you know, um, the only time I was wrong, uh, I thought I was wrong, but then I realized I was right. So actually, I wasn't wrong. (laughs) I mean, how lame is that? Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's just all about creating wellness and not damaging minds and hearts. You know, did God invent the Bible for us to beat people over the head with it or to 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 bring hope and healing, you know, all of those things. So, yeah, that's good. Let's say there's somebody reading this. They're not a leader, but they realize I was abused <laughs> from the pulpit. You know, maybe uh, uh, the pastor called them out to embarrass them and shame them, not talking to them privately. How can somebody, what can they do? And I know every situation is different. Well, if they're still in that same congregation, I would advise them to make an appointment, a personal appointment with the pastor. It's not healthy to let that offense live on 
in someone's spirit. In Matthew 18, Jesus told us that the burden of confrontation is not on the perpetrator, but it's on the one who's taken the offense. And the Bible says, go to them alone. That's probably the most um, overlooked uh, command of Jesus Mm -hmm. in the Bible. Um, You know, people want to vindicate themselves. They want to get everybody on their team. They take it to social media. You know, they want to rally the troops. Right. And uh, that's not what Jesus told us to do. So my advice would be go, go alone and be humble, be broken, be prayerful. And uh, I've had church members bring things to me that I had said, that I had done. And I've always appreciated that, particularly if it's very humble, if it's honest. Most leaders will be approached with humility and graciousness. Uh, and get that resolved. Um, if, if that church member has withdrawn from that congregation or perhaps the pastor has deceased, you know, all you can do is take that to the Lord in prayer on your knees and just you know, confront it in prayer once and for all and then move on. Um, we've all been subjected to flawed leaders because every leader is flawed. Right. And, uh, you know, my pastor, uh, when I was in Bible college, confronted me in front of about 100 students for something I was innocent of. Hmm. And I won't go into the whole story, but I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. And I didn't know what to do with it. And it was during break time. And so... Uh, I went to my next class, and I sat in there for a few minutes, and I thought, what just happened? This is weird. This is, And I had enough uh, gumption, I guess, character and trust in my relationship with my pastor that I excused myself from the class. I went straight to my pastor's office. I knocked on the door gently, and I heard him say, please come in. I opened the door, and he said, stand. Close the door. I said, Pastor, what just happened out there? He hung his head in embarrassment and shame. He came over to me. He gave me a hug. He said, Stan, I don't know. I'm under a lot of stress. Hmm. I'm under a lot of pressure. And I found out later even his marriage was in trouble. I didn't know it at the time. And... uh, you know, we just had a short moment of, you know, forgivenesses offered and accepted and exchanged. And for the next six months, I would say at least, he would go out of his way, walk across the, uh, the hallway, come across the, the auditorium to shake my hand, hug my neck, tell me he was sorry. Of course, the damage was done with the students, but I didn't throw him under the bus. I went directly to the source of the issue. Hmm. And to be honest, I was more like Christ that day than he was. Amen. And I'm not patting myself on the back, but it was a major lesson for me. And I thought, I'm never going to have this moment as a pastor in my life that my pastor just had. Hmm. I think those conversations one-on-one when nobody else is looking... This is the place you know where the walls come down, and it it's gets, Christ-like. 
It's, it's Christ-like. It's real. And, and there's the spirit of restoration there and forgiveness, you know, which I, I think angels rejoice when that happens between people, and especially between a pastor and a, a saint. Well, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Mm. He didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. It's impossible to keep peace in the human condition. Right. But there's always a way to make peace. Mm-hmm. And Paul said, you know, with all men, maintain peace as much as you possibly can. Amen. And it takes a big man or a big woman to say, you know what, I'm not 100% at fault here, but I'm going to do what I can. This is, this is not healthy. This is not right. We're going to get this thing right. Absolutely. And doing that is just as spiritual as a powerful altar call. Absolutely. Just as powerful. And in, sometimes us Pentecostals <laughs> think a one-on-one isn't powerful, but, oh, it's very powerful. Yeah, you'll shake up stuff in the spirit world, and the devil can't fight that. Yeah, you pull the devil's stinger out. That's sure how I do. like to you characterize sure it. Just pull his stinger out, give him no ammunition, making no room for the flesh and no place to the devil. You're right. You experienced serving under a pastor who was not true to his initial agreement with you concerning a pastoral transition. And uh, I've heard you talk about it, other preacher friends of yours that are your age that talk about this. They, An older pastor will bring in, you know, he's getting older, he's, ready, he's thinking about retiring, he brings in a younger man to, uh, you know, become his successor, things start going good, and the older pastor says, no, we're not changing anything, we'll just keep it the way, <laughs> the way it is, and that, you know, you're right about that, and that happened to you, and uh, why, describe why this happens, and what can we do about it, why do the elder, the senior pastors do this, what's the proper reaction for a younger preacher, and just kind of maybe expound on your story. Sure, well, uh, for the listeners, you know, this is not a pastor bashing therapeutic session. Um, of course. We're looking for answers in typical scenarios that have happened over and over again. And I think what happens generally is, first of all, God bless the pastors that are visionary enough to find a successor and to invest in that successor. That successor, that is the real apostolic path and pattern of replacement is uh, the elder lays his mantle, so to speak, on the, on the younger, such as Elijah and Elisha. I think what happens is a pastor becomes tired, he's weary, he finds an energetic bright light, brings him alongside, uh, truly has intentions honest intentions of handing things over. But what typically happens is when the young man comes alongside, there's a lift in the congregation. People become excited. There's an energy that comes that the pastor hasn't seen for a long time. And if he's not careful, he can uh, sort of think, well, I'm doing a really good job of leading right now. And actually, it could be more of the energy that the young man is bringing to the uh, pastoral context. And so the pastor misreads the energy, the the revival, the renewal, and it energizes him. And he sort of becomes uh, 
could I use the word seduced in a very positive way by the temperature in the congregation that is rising in a very good way? And it makes him rethink the timing of the transition. And in my case, uh, there were promises made to me, to my wife, with him and his wife also in the room. And I never brought those promises up for three years. I never approached them. I never said anything about them. And neither did the pastor. We never had an ongoing conversation. So when I just, in a very non-threatening way, said, you know, pastor, you said that if things went well in two or three years, you uh, really wanted to uh, hand things over to us. And are you still thinking that way? That was my question. Are you still thinking that way? There's a lot of things he could have said that could have kept me encouraged. He could have said, yes, but, uh, you know, we need just another year or two. I would have been okay. I was 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Time is on my side. Uh, Or he could have said, no, I'm rethinking that and I'm looking another direction. That would have been okay, too. And then we would have explored what that looked like. But what he said was not okay. He said, no, I never said that. I have no recollection of that. I didn't say, well, there were three other witnesses in the room. I didn't, you know, berate him for, you know, misrepresenting his own words. I just said, well, sir, um, I probably will be tendering my resignation in the next few days because I couldn't follow someone who's not a man of his word. Right. Wow. Man. (laughs) And sometimes that's the best option. (laughs) Yeah. I wasn't going to create a problem for him. Yeah. Wow. What's interesting, we left, we were elected as a pastor of another church in about two years he contacted me hmm. and he asked me, he said, my wife has developed stage four cancer. Would you consider coming back and being my successor? Hmm. So he knew that he could trust me. Hmm. But by that time I was ensconced as a pastor of a church and I did not want to, you know, pastors accuse saints of church hopping. I didn't want to be a pastor hopper. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> There's a thought. There is a thought. <laughs> Might have to come back to that at a later time, but I think how you handled that with uh, your pastor in that church and situation was some Christ-like wellness. I sure reached for it. Amen. Amen. Uh, you said a statement that I just... Uh, really caught my eye and you were talking about witchcraft but not witchcraft as we think of it like as like as a practicing a pagan witch but you define witchcraft in the church as anyone who uses a spirit other than the holy spirit to manipulate what they want out of somebody and some preachers do this with their anger their rage their victimization shame uh, humiliation, things like that, it ends up becoming witchcraft, whether I doubt they're using a demon. Of course, they could be. The devil could be at work through all of that because those are aspects that the devil uses, but it could just be a flawed uh, human spirit. 
And uh, what's the unflawed way, if I could ask it that way, mm. that a preacher needs to, what does he need to do? The approach he needs to, to the approach he needs to come to the pulpit with to make a hard point, and not using a spirit of witchcraft. How do you use the Holy Spirit to do hard things? So this is a question about communication, and as a spirit-filled leader ministering in spirit-filled congregations, we don't preach in a vacuum. In other words, we're not at Walmart. We're not at a a uh, you know um, a concert. We're in the context of the body of Christ, and um, human spirits are contagious. Someone said your attitude like is is like a cold. You give it to the people you get close to. Uh, mm-hmm. I also read one time where your attitude is like your breath. Never assume it's good. And uh, so as presenters of the Word of God, we have great latitude, and we can go any direction we want to go. Some communicators have what I would call the sheer power of human personality. And that can be used for good, but it also can be very manipulative. And, you know, it's okay to preach about hell, but don't preach like you want somebody to go there. Mm -hmm. We should never preach about hell with dry eyes. Mm. We should be broken. Amen. So... Sister Nona Freeman was the one who alerted me to witchcraft, and that's probably a real strong word. That was her word, and I use it in the book advisedly. But I think it's a great example. Yeah, witchcraft is a is a is a means to achieve a desired end through some sort of control and manipulation. I'm not suggesting that. Apostolic preachers are accessing the dark side and, you know, demons. And that's not what we're talking about when we say witchcraft. We're talking about using uh, the power of human personality, guilt, shame, intimidation to achieve a desired end and to bring people under our control. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Your brother Caleb was in a large gathering, uh, not in our organization, but was visiting some family who worshiped beyond the pale of UPCI, and he had never been exposed to that brand of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Let's say it that way. Yeah. And he was 19 years old, and um, he was texting me during that service. He said, Dad, what kind of a church is this? I said, well, it's a, you know, they preach Acts 238 and the oneness of God. It's fine. He said, no, it feels weird. I said, well, if you were to put one word on it, what would it be? He said, control. That's what I'm talking about. There's a big difference between the power of a human spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. As a pastor, I trust Jesus. I trust the Holy Ghost. I trust the spirit of conviction and the spirit of holiness to lead and guide people into all truth. Theological truth, doctrinal truth, lifestyle truth, whatever it is. I don't feel like I have to, you know, manipulate people, control people. 
And so Sister Freeman is the one that alerted me to this. Uh, I'll just be real and tell you her story. She said that she was uh, at a ladies' conference, and she had on a small, thin, plain, humble wedding band. And E.L. Freeman had been passed by this time, but she still wore it. And she held it up, and she said, this simple ring that I've worn for 60-odd years is a sign of my unending commitment to my husband. She told me that she was brutally criticized by a certain brand of holiness people who would say that you were going to hell because you were wearing a wedding band. And perhaps that is a a debate that uh, is, you know, we have it in our ranks, but that is a local church culture decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought a woman of this magnitude that started all these churches in Africa and developed all these leaders, uh, but she she said, Brother Gleason, that that is witchcraft uh, yeah. to to uh, try to manipulate people with guilt and shame and attack them for something that. You know, they don't have a conviction about. And preachers are good for preaching against things they don't like or things they're not good at. <laughs> yes. And Say that again. Preachers are good about preaching things they have convictions about and things they don't like. They preach against things they're not good at or things they don't like. <laughs> things they're not good at or don't like. So when I married your mother... Um, she said, don't tell my dad you play golf. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I'm not sneaking around with my golf clubs, you know, in my father-in-law's house. I'm not doing it. And I went straight to him, and I said, sir, Marlene told me that you preached against golf. I said, I have to confess my sin. I'm a golfer. I said, you know, it is holy ground. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> 18 holy, that is. And uh, I said, I can't sneak around and pretend you're my father-in-law. I respect you. I have to come straight to you. I said, have you ever played golf? He said, no. I said, well, I know you like to hunt. You like to fish. So I know you're an outdoorsman. But I said, I don't, I don't consume alcohol. I don't hang out in the clubhouse. I don't go with people that are smoking and drinking and telling off-color jokes. Uh, I play golf with my friends my my apostolic friends and he said well you playing golf is probably no worse than me sitting down and drinking a whole pot of coffee at one setting (laughs) so he probably thought that was his worst vice you know that he was convicted about so anyway we settled that issue right away oh that's funny yes you pastored a church Uh, it was the second church you were at that you served after bible college and I've heard you describe it, the revival that you were wanting, revival you felt that God had for that city, that church. There was a lot of people in that church that did not want uh, that type of revival. And in the book, you talk about elders in the church who want to control, and, and you just write about the absolute mess that it was. Can you expound on that story, how... I guess what you learned about that on how to be how to become a non-flawed leader from from seeing the darker side sure. of church operations. Well, these people were good people. They loved God. 
They meant well. They just didn't have a clue. Um, they elected a 25-year-old young man who always tried to keep his heart in the right place. And they knew that. But they hadn't baptized anybody in two years. Hmm. And the baptistry was a storage room for instrument cases. And so uh, I should say a storage area. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to operate in faith and clean out this baptistry and fill it up and heat it up and have it ready, sort of as a prophetic act of faith. So I did that. And first Sunday morning when I had that ready, what happened to the baptistry? Where'd the horn cases go? I said, well, they're back there in the storage room. I said, you never know. We might baptize somebody today. After all, that's the mission. That's why we're here. Mm -hmm. And so... In the first three months we served that church, we baptized 16. Amen. And it was a very exciting time, a very lifted time. I just couldn't believe how God was blessing us. And I was teaching a lot of home Bible studies with uh, people in the church, uh, somebody they knew, somebody I met in the community. I thought everybody would be excited, but it hit the fan, so to speak, and it launched uh, an attack because people became insecure. It was a small family owned and operated church, and I was not in the family. And they were afraid they were going to lose their power center and their influence. Ah. That was the issue. The problem's never the problem. Sure. And uh, so they started attacking me, my leadership, my pronunciation of words. Uh, little crazy things, uh, and it it was on. I'm going to just tell you, it was on, and I was never fought for myself. Uh, they tried to starve me out. I took a second job, which I, I had no problem working, but I didn't need to work. I could be a full-time pastor, mm -hmm. uh, but they uh, controlled. It was a board-run church. They controlled the finances. Uh, they called a meeting to dismiss me. My presbyter, William Sisko, came mm. to the meeting. God intervened and helped us through all of that. But it has a good ending. We were there five years. By the way, that pastor that I served previously called me after I'd been there two years. I really could have left real easily because I was getting my teeth kicked in every week. Mm. But I thought, you know what, I'm not a quitter. I'm not going to do that. Mm. And I stood up to the carnal, human, us for, and no more, hold the fort mentality. And we broke through, and God helped us. And the church doubled in five years. And then when uh, I felt my energy, my passion for the church leave, I resigned. And a gentleman, a pastor by the name of Jim Schumacher, became the pastor of that church, and he took it to a whole new level. And they probably have 4 or $5 million worth of property today. They're doing so well. Mm. And I thank God for that. But, um, yeah, it was a time to, to learn how to try to be Christ in difficult times. Yes, yes. A lot of good insight into situations like that in this book. You also write great things about how to create Christ-like wellness in a in your family, for pastor, leader, anybody. And you do share a story about you and I 
uh, in my teenage years, uh, I had some attitude problems. <laughs> and you and guy, you and I got in a heated discussion. I remember I left, and I knew you had a meeting to get to, and I thought I'll come back after Dad leaves and just be alone, you know, in my room. But to my surprise, when I came back, you were still there at the house waiting for me. <laughs> and I said, Dad, what about your meeting? And you said, well... I'm a father before I'm a pastor, and you canceled that meeting to spend time with me and to make it right, and I just, you know, that that was, I went on a, a, it changed me right there in that moment, changed me right there in that moment, but uh, you know, people can read the book and talk about that, but there's just instances like that, I think, where a lot of pastors don't even know how to how to have a good relationship with their kids. I mean, the kids don't have a, have a clue how to have a relationship with the dad and then the husband and wife and thing, you know. What are some good principles for a leader to bring um, Christ-like wellness into their family? This is a great question and something that uh, all lead church leaders need to think about. Let me start by saying that we should never sacrifice our family on the altar of ministry. Hmm. I just want that to sink in. Uh, as pastors, um, we get a lot of energy, and as church leaders, we get a lot of compliments and energy from the people we serve. Uh, and if we're not careful, we can really gravitate to that and just want another fix and another buzz and another high. And we, we forsake our, our marriage. We, we look to other people for our satisfaction and our reward. But our greatest reward should be uh, the disciples we have in our own home. Uh, I credit God and the Queen Marlene, my wife, your mother, for helping raise four apostolic Christ followers, you, your brother, your two sisters, and now, of course, sweet Anna, your wife, and Mm -hmm. Daniel, and now the next generation, five grandchildren coming mm -hmm. along and watching them become worshipers. So I adopted John Maxwell's definition of true success. I read this many years ago, and I thought, that's going to be my definition of success. Success in life is not 10,000 in church on a Sunday morning. But it's having the people closest to you love and respect you the most. I've been privileged to serve as assistant general superintendent for 12 years, and it still boggles my mind when I walk in the boardroom and there's maybe 75 to 100 chairs at tables, and then there's four chairs at the head table uh, where I sit next to our general superintendent and the general secretary and the other assistant general superintendent, and it still amazes me that, that that's where I'm supposed to go in the board meeting. <laughs> and I've thought many times, you know, UPCI has 45,000 churches around the world and some of the greatest leaders I've ever been around. And I perhaps in some measure could fool those men that I sit beside. I could pretend to be something I'm really not. God knows we've all been surprised by people who were living double lives. We've all seen it. But I thought, you know, I want their love and respect, but more than that, I want your love and respect, Justin. 
I want Caleb and Marissa and Michaela and Anna and Daniel's love and respect. I want the love and respect of my wife and my grandchildren more than I want the love and respect of my colleagues. Because uh, when you were kids, you ate Cheerios at my breakfast table every morning. We went on vacations together. You were in the car when I was driving. And if I'm fake, Mm. and if I'm one thing when I'm with my family because I can control them and control the narrative and be a jerk to my family, but then put on a nice Christian smile when I'm treating, you know, when I'm walking among the saints and walking among the UPCI, you know, leadership, uh, you know, that greatly displeases God. And fake never impacts anyone eternally for for eternity with Christ. Yeah, fake could impact people negatively for eternity. And so I think when preachers' kids walk with God, it's a testament to the integrity of the parents that are in leadership and ministry. That's not to say that if kids backslide out of a pastor or a leader's home that there's not integrity. When children grow up and become adults, obviously they make their own choices. But I think, like the Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they're not depart from it. That's not a promise. That's a generally true statement. But as leaders, we can put the right choices in our children. And uh, reflecting back, Justin, to that story you just told, I actually did leave the house, and I got in the car, and I was backing up. And the Lord spoke to me and said, you are a jerk. (laughs) I said, what do you mean I'm a jerk? He said, your highest and best work is in that house right now, not to this small group you're going to go facilitate. You... And and I was so convicted. I was so convicted. And you were about 15. And, you know, it's normal for a 15-year-old to start asserting their independence and their adulthood. And and you were my, you know, you were the kid I practiced on. <laughs> and I had three more after you. But uh, no wonder you turned out so good, right? So, That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I pulled the car back in the garage, closed the door, came in. If I'm not mistaken, I apologized to you and had a much more humble approach. It disarmed you, and we were finally able to communicate and resolve it, and we ended with a hug and a prayer, probably a few tears. And I never forgot it until, well, I did forget about it until one day you brought it up when you were preaching mm-hmm. several years ago, mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, that had a bigger made a bigger impression on Justin than what I realized. I'd forgot about it, but... You brought it back to my remembrance, and now it's in my narrative. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, it was a uh, a turning point for me when I was about sixteen years old, and uh, it, it was Christ-like wellness, you know, and God was in that in that meeting, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was very special. And preachers need to do that for their kids. You know, all sons need their fathers, desperately need our fathers. Yeah, there's a lot of great content in the book about that that I think will bless families. Um, you have told our church, and I've heard you say it even when you're a guest minister. This is kind of our last question here. The statement, and you write about it in your book, in one of the on page two, one of the first few pages. Don't look too closely at my life. 
don't look too closely at my life. And I remember, you know, hearing that you say that right, right when I came home from Bible college and I thought, whoa, why would a pastor say that? Don't look too closely at me. And I interpreted because I knew, well, my dad has nothing to hide. But I just through the years got to understanding that. And that is what we've already discussed. Every preacher is flawed. And if you look too closely and pick that apart, that's not a healthy mindset for a saint. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, I've made that statement occasionally through the years. And I think, like, your reaction when you came back from Bible college is the reaction that a lot of people have. But when you reflect on that statement, the the entire statement is, don't look too closely at me because you're sure to find something that you won't like. And that's just an admission of humanity. And I think a church member, when a pastor or a leader makes a statement like that, that's not a dysfunctional statement. That is a statement of health and invitation to examination and accountability. I usually also followed up with a statement something like, I don't have anything to hide. I'm not protecting any deep, dark secret, but I'm not afraid of your examination because I'm really not the goal anyway. Mm. Jesus mm. is the goal. Wow. And when you, you look at Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, uh, you can find a flaw in every one of those leaders that are cited as our great champions of the faith. Noah's drunkenness, David's adultery, Abraham's succumbing to uh, a human means to bring about a divine promise from God. You know, Samson's love for women of the world and uh, all of these flaws, Jacob's usurping and heel grabbing and all of that. And that's what his name means, heel grabber. But when you turn the page to chapter 12, the writer quickly says, looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Mm. Just glance at those leaders, but you can gaze at Jesus. Mm. And so that statement of mine is an attempt, really, to demonstrate that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I go out to eat too much if somebody examined my bank account. Maybe I play too much golf. I don't think once a week is too much. No. But every time I hit a good shot on the golf course, one of my preacher friends is probably going to say, hey, Gleason, you need to get back in the prayer room. You're getting too good at your golf game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you can glance at me, but you could pick me apart if you wanted to. But you can gaze at Jesus because the closer you get, the better he looks. And that's the goal of all leadership is to embody who Jesus was. And I'm Amen. still reaching for him. Mm. Oh, that's good. Awesome. Well, this book, I think, is another breakthrough book. I think it is going to uh, change and be so, uh, change the way we think as leaders and uh, really, in, a, in its own way, become a, a culture changer and how we lead churches, and how we lead our families, and how we uh, care and take care of ourselves. 
as leaders to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a phenomenal book. I'm so glad you wrote it. And uh, I'm, it's definitely a book I'm going to read many, many times. So, amen. Stan O'Gleason, the author of The Unflawed Leader, also the author of the great book Follow to Lead. And uh, there's a rumor going around there's also another book <laughs> that is uh, in the works, soon to be published. Sure. Can you talk about it? Sure. Well, you know, we all got knocked down during COVID, and I thought, well, if I'm isolated, I would like to at least be productive. And so I was thinking about young pastors um, who've never been trained or equipped in how to talk about money, Mm. how to present money to the church. Stewardship, really, is what I'm talking about. And so um, there's a book that's being published by Word of Flame, UPCI, Pentecostal Publishing, it's coming out at General Conference this year in Orlando. In fact, they've asked me to do a book signing on Wednesday night after the service in the book display area, so I'm Fantastic. really looking forward to that. It's entitled A Culture of Generosity, Culture of Generosity, and the tagline is Having the Stewardship Conversation. And so there's three parts to the book. There's 14 short chapters, 15, I think, short chapters, that situate all things money, how to think about it, how to talk about it, how, how to overcome uh, the charlatans out there, you know, uh, that, you know, the name it and claim it, grab it and blab it, the prosperity <laughs> gospel people, right. you know, to help a preacher through that stigma to get past that. So that's the first section. The second section is worth way more than the price of the book. There's 104 two-minute offering sermons that a pastor can use on Sunday. So there's two years worth of Sunday two-minute offering segments that dignify the offering, that don't throw the offering segment away. Everything we do creates culture in the church, and we can create a culture of generosity by how we handle the offering moment. In other words, too many times somebody's just thrown up there to give them pulpit time, say, well, we're going to take up the offering right now. And that's one thing offering. I talk about. <laughs> the offering. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing I talk about is never <laughs> use the word take Right. when you're talking about the offering. Uh, so that's the second section. And the third section, there are 10 scripted sermons that I've preached at our church through the years on stewardship and mm-hmm. giving, word for word, um, that will help a young pastor or any pastor, I hope, uh, situate money in a healthy, balanced way that will help create a culture of giving in the congregation. Oh, fantastic. We'll definitely have to have you back on when that book is released. Wow. There you have it, everyone. Your pastor and assistant general superintendent, Stan O'Gleason. Thank you, Justin. <laughs>